This is Romans 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, having opened this text once already this morning, I feel, felt then and feel now, the utter inadequacy of my voice to make happen the miracle of newness of spirit, not oldness of letter. And so it's fitting that we begin with prayer again. Because you're the only one who by your Holy Spirit could come at this moment as you have been coming through this service, quickening, wakening, comforting, convicting, guiding, encouraging, humbling, strengthening, who could come again now and open the hearts of a thousand people to the Holy Spirit and to walking and serving in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. So, Father, I ask for the miracle that I cannot perform. I can only point and lay open some of your precious word and trust that it would become in the power and hand of the Holy Spirit life-changing, faith-awakening, sin-cleansing, relationship-healing, hope-giving. So, Lord, would you please do that now to display your grace and to make us a joyful people in Christ. In his name I pray. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but last week I said there was an ocean of meaning under verse 6, and I had in mind in particular this little phrase, so we serve in newness of the Spirit and not oldness of the letter. There at the end of verse 6, you see that? We serve in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. And I said there's an ocean of meaning under those words there in verse 6, because that's the language of, of the new covenant which I'll come to in just a few minutes. Because many of you in this room don't even know what I mean by that phrase, New Covenant, where does it come from? Why is that important? Why do you think there's an ocean of meaning in the New Covenant underneath this verse? So that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to take you to the shores of the ocean and maybe take a dive in and get a taste 
of this ocean of new covenant meaning underneath those words. We serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. And I have a very simple agenda this morning. Tell you right what it is. I think that if you can uh, take a dive into that meaning and uh, walk around some of the shores and get a, a sense of the, the majesty and the depth of this ocean of new covenant meaning, you will trust God more and you will love Christ more. And trusting God hour by hour this afternoon and tomorrow is what Christianity is about. Sometimes we think it's about Having trusted him, I trusted him. That's not what it's about. It's about trusting him now with the, with what you're facing this afternoon, the tests or the relationships or the work or the health problem or whatever. Do you trust him? Do you trust him now with that? This week, this month, this hour, who you have to talk to at the end of this service maybe? Can you trust Him? Can you roll right now the burden that is pushing down on you as you sit there? Can you roll that off of Him? Because you trust the promise, cast your burdens on the Lord, for He will sustain you. You trust Him. That's what Christianity is about. And the reason it's about that is because love, which is the practical outworkings of this, is what the goal of Christianity is. It says in... In 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is love from a clean heart and a good conscience and faith unfeigned, sincere, authentic. So love flows from faith. So if I can get you into this ocean of depth and majesty that's underneath verse 6... So that you know the eternity and the thousands of years God spent getting you saved. Then it might be that you would trust him more and love him more. And out of that would come more love to more people. And we'd get more letters like this one. I was so encouraged. This is on my desk in my my box this morning from one of our speakers at the pastor's conference. Just give you the closing line here. The whole time in Minneapolis has been like a swim in an ocean of love, even triune love expressed through his children. That's the goal. That's my agenda. So if I take you into theology, it's because that's what I want to happen. And I think... True knowledge of God and true awareness of the depth and majesty of the ocean of truth underneath verses like verse 6 does cause us to love Him more and trust Him more and yield that kind of behavior, which I dare say hundreds of you, I don't know how many, but hundreds of you manifested to these pastors in the last uh, several days while they were here. So, here's the way we're going to do it. We'll take the context briefly, then we're going to back off the context and go out into other parts of the Bible where the shores are for the new covenant and try to understand where is John Piper getting this new covenant idea? I don't see it anywhere in the text. And why does he think this is such a big deal? Okay? So let's go to the context first. You remember 
if you were here last week, I said what Paul is doing in Romans 7, 1 to 6, is answering this question. Why is it, Paul, that when we are not under law but under grace, we don't become lawless people but loving people? Because back in chapter 6, verse 15, he said, Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Why? Why is it that when you take law away as a threat and a demander, you don't become lawless, but loving? Why? That's what these six verses are designed to answer. We began the answer last week. Let's summarize it again. First three verses are an analogy, a comparison with marriage. It's a complex thing. We'll tackle it some more in the weeks to come. But just in a nutshell, if a death happens in a marriage, one of the partners dies. The other partner is not bound by law anymore not to be married to somebody else. If a death happens, if the, if the partner dies, the law is nullified, as it were, and another marriage happens legally. That's the situation. So now the application comes in verses 4 to 6, and we read it starting in verse 4. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another. In other words, when Christ died, according to chapter 6, verse 5, we were united to Christ. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, a union, God establishes a union with Jesus so that his death becomes your death. So that's what it means when it says, by or through the body of Christ, we died. And when he died, having Born the full penalty of the law's condemnation of sin and having fulfilled the full demand of the law for perfect obedience. Those two things having been done and we die in him, we die to the law. The law doesn't have a condemning power over us anymore. It doesn't have that external crushing demand on us anymore. The perfection that it demanded Christ lived, and the condemnation that it requires, Christ endured, and therefore the law is off of us. And then it gives a purpose for why we have died to the law. It says, still in verse 4, so that you might be joined to another. In other words, you didn't die to the law and have it taken away from you as a slave master in order that you might float around in a neutral no man's land. Rather, what happens is you're united to Christ and it's like a second marriage. And I know one, one person said to me last week, this is a little bit hard for the men to hear because men marrying men is not a good thing. And I know that. And so I'm just asking you guys to understand this is an analogy. Some of us have a, a less hard time making those transitions to think of Jesus as our spouse. But if that's a problem for you, just think this is an analogy. This is a metaphor. In other words, there is a relationship here of sweetness and depth and firmness and permanence. Call it what you will. It's to be joined to him. 
to be joined to another. That's what follows the death. If that didn't follow the death, lawlessness would follow the death. There's one more thing in verse 4. Why are we united to him? Our salvation is liberation from law, unification to Jesus. Why? Last phrase in the verse. In order that we might bear fruit for God. There's love. That's where I got the idea that what he's doing here is explaining why love, not lawlessness, results from the removal of the law. And the reason is, as he explains in verse 4, because when you die to the law, you are now united to another. And in that union with Jesus Christ, his spirit and his life begin to be formed in you and flow through you. And the form it takes is fruit unto God, which we know from other places is love. So there's his answer. Love comes from being delivered from the law, not lawlessness. Now, verse 6 simply says the same thing in different words and moves us towards the ocean of meaning in the new covenant. Let's read verse 6. Just restatement. But now we have been released from the law. We've seen that. Having died, we saw that through through the body of Christ, having died to that which we were bound. So that, here comes the purpose again, we serve. So you serve one another in love, not, not consuming one another in lawlessness. So that we serve. And now here come these amazing words. In newness of the Spirit... Not in oldness of the letter. So I want to spend the rest of our time looking at the ocean of meaning underneath those words. The newness of the spirit, not the oldness of the letter. Those words, newness versus oldness, spirit versus letter. Spirit versus letter. Letter, meaning the law written on the stone tablets. Spirit, something from God inside of us, himself. Now, where am I getting this idea that there's new covenant here? You look, where's that? Where's that? I don't see any word covenant. If you want to turn with me, I'll show you the very close Exact parallel almost to this text in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Has two books over. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Romans leads us into these verses in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6. Where the new covenant is mentioned explicitly in regard to spirit and letter. So, 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate in ourselves, Paul says, to consider anything is coming from ourselves. Our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Now, there's the phrase. Now, here's the parallel. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, you say, why why did you think of New Covenant when you read that in Romans 7, 6? And the answer is, because I knew this verse. And I knew that in Paul's mind, spirit versus letter is a New Covenant issue. 
So now we need to ask, what, what, what do you mean? What is, what are you talking about, new covenant? Where you get that idea? I don't even know what that word means. What is new covenant? So let's take a crash course in some Old Testament thinking about the covenant here. If you want to go with me, I'm going to go to Jeremiah 31. And then after Jeremiah, I'm going to go one book over to Ezekiel 19 and 36. So first, we're going to read the classic text on the new covenant. The promise that someday there would be another kind of covenant than the first one that was made at Mount Sinai called the Mosaic Covenant. There's going to be another one, which is what Paul is talking about in Romans 7, 6 and 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6. So, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. Let's read it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant. There it is. The new covenant. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Let me stop there and just say, if I had an hour, I would support this more extensively. But I appeal to past teachings, that is not only relevant to Jews who are physical Jews, it's relevant to all of us who have the faith of Abraham and thus become the children of Abraham. Or all of us who are united with Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, and therefore we become genuine heirs of Abraham. could argue that extensively from Romans 4 and Galatians 3, but I won't. So I think this applies to you Christians. You Christian and you unbeliever who could become a Christian and thus become an heir of these things. So, a new covenant is being promised to us who are in Christ. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand and to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So that's the Mosaic covenant. The covenant that he made with Moses at Mount Sinai with the people of Israel. This is different. And then he says, my covenant, which they broke, they broke, although I was the husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. See, it was in letter on stone. Within them and on their heart, I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. They will not teach, again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. That's the New Covenant promise. It's the clearest, most full and explicit statement of the New Covenant promise in the Old Testament. What do we learn from it? Three things. Number one, we learn that in the New Covenant, different from the Old Covenant, the law will no longer be mainly an external written thing on stone, but mainly an internal thing written on the heart. Or, to put it another way, the decisive thing about the law in the New Covenant is that it is 
not an external demand from outside, but a desire welling up from inside. I think that's what written on the heart means. So in the Old Covenant, the law was decisively demand from outside. And in the New Covenant, the law is decisively desire from inside. That's the difference. Secondly, we learn that in the Old Covenant, there had to be this constant pressing to know the Lord. Know the Lord. Know the Lord. And here he says, they're all going to know me. They're going to know me from the least to the greatest. In other words, God is going to become in the new covenant a precious father, intimate friend, uh, somebody that you know, not just hear about from a law, but know in relationship. And the third thing we learn about the new covenant is that all our iniquities are going to be wiped away. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. God wipes away all sin. He gives an intimate and personal knowledge of himself. And he writes the law in our hearts so that the law ceases to be decisively a demand from outside and becomes decisively a desire from inside. That's the new covenant. Now you should ask... Where's the Spirit? Verse 6 of Romans 7 says, In newness of spirit, not oldness of letter. Nothing there about the Holy Spirit. You're right. It's not explicit. So, to finish the picture of the new covenant, we need to take in Ezekiel's picture of it. Ezekiel chapter 19 and Ezekiel chapter 36. Because Paul picks up on this very, very explicitly. And powerfully. Ezekiel. It's a big book right after Jeremiah or Lamentations. Chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them one heart and put a new spirit. There it is. Within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances to do them, then they will be my people and I will be their God. So I'm going to give them a new spirit. And then in chapter 36, verse 26 and 27, it gets even more explicit, this new covenant promise of the spirit. Ezekiel 36, 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And here it is. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. That's what I think he meant in Jeremiah when he said, I'll write the law in your hearts. Here he says, I'll cause you. I'm not going to leave it up to you anymore. The decisive new work of God. I'm going to cause you from inside out by the beginning of new desires. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my 
ordinances. So we have a new covenant and we have an old covenant. God designed the old covenant to be inadequate and to fail. He designed it that way. We'll take that up a little more fully in the weeks to come. It's very clear. You read Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 to 24. Stunning verses about the planned locking in of the people to sin by the law. Why? Somebody came up to me after the first sermon and said, Why would God plan a failing covenant? And the answer is this. In order to make crystal clear to the Jewish people and to everyone watching, every mouth stopped, that if what you get is a demand from outside without a spiritual miracle from inside, is failure. That's all you get. We cannot do it without Him. That's the point of the Old Covenant. It's to drive us to Jesus. It's to point to the the day when the Spirit will come. The Son will come. Faith will come. That's the way it talks in Galatians 3. And right now the law is boxing everything in. It is letter coming to us from outside and there must be a mighty work of God from within inside. That's the new covenant. And the second reason for that failure that God planned is so that Christ would shine as all in all. Everything is pointing to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. Our failure makes us know we got to have a substitute to bear our sin and be our righteousness. And everything there makes us to know we've got to have a spirit to work within us, godliness, or otherwise we're going to be a lawless people. And the law in its provision for the advanced token of that new covenant in the sacrifices, you could be forgiven for your sins in the old covenant. But only because you heard the the stunning word of the law demanding perfection, driving you to a sacrifice which would cover your sins, which was foretaste of the sacrifice, Jesus, so that everything in the law, failing as it was to produce the kind of people God wanted, was to point us to Jesus. The sacrifices pointed to Jesus. The failure to keep the perfection pointed to Jesus. It was all about the glory of the Son. God's in no hurry. Did you know that? Took him about 2,000 years to do this. He is in no hurry. It's amazing what God's up to in this world. And your life. Question. When did the new covenant get inaugurated? When did it come? When did it start? Jeremiah and Ezekiel, it's still out there somewhere in the future. Let's go to hear Jesus answer this question in Luke 22:20. I chose to preach this message today because it's the Lord's table Sunday. I could have done it next week or the week after, but in how to order these six verses, I I went ahead and did it today because it's communion and this communion is a celebration of the new covenant. Luke 22 verse 20, Luke says, "In the same way, Jesus took the cup after he had eaten, saying, 
This cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. Wow. Talk about oceans of meaning now. (laughs) The new covenant is in the blood of Jesus. What does that mean? The new covenant. All those promises of law being written on your heart. You're going to know God. Your sins are going to be forgiven. You're going to have the Holy Spirit. They're going to become desires from inside, not demands from outside. All of that is bought by the blood of Jesus. That's what he means. We owe the blood of Jesus. We owe the bloodshedding and the death of Jesus. Every benefit that we have in the new covenant. Are your sins forgiven? You owe it to Jesus. Do you have the Holy Spirit? You owe it to Jesus. Do you feel any desires for godliness rising up in your heart? You owe it to Jesus. Do you know God is your Father? You owe it to Jesus. Everything is in the blood. The new covenant is in the blood. So, if you ask, when did it start? When was it inaugurated? The answer was, when he died. Which is why, by the way, Pentecost happened after the resurrection and the death of Jesus and not any other time in history. The Holy Spirit's been at work in history ever since creation. You can read about him all over the place. But there was a decisive outpouring of the Holy Spirit when the crucified Son whose blood had been shed went into heaven and received the promise of the Father as only a crucified Son could do and then He poured out that which you see in here so that we would know the presence and the blessing of the Holy Spirit is owing to one main thing in the world Christ died to purchase it for me. So... The new covenant in my blood is a massive statement. Now let's go back to our text and wrap it up. Chapter 7, verse 6 of Romans. Now we have been released from the law, having died to that which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit. And now I hope you hear some of the new covenant meaning of that phrase. We're serving in newness of the Spirit, not oldness of the letter. We are beneficiaries of the new covenant. Christ himself has died. We've died in him. And when he died, he died as our punishment from the law and our perfection in the law. So that now the law, both in its demand for perfection and in its demand for punishment, is off of me. I've said a hundred times in this pulpit, you don't have to be perfect. Go to heaven. When I call for sanctification, as I'm going to be doing now for about two years... I know I'm not going to get any perfection from you or me. So, doesn't God demand perfection? He absolutely does. And Jesus is our perfection. Which is why the law that demands perfection is off of us. You see that? He's my perfection. And now I'm united to Him. I'm married to another. He's mine. He's my perfection. He's my punishment. He's my all in all. Did you ever wonder what Paul meant when he said, to live is Christ. Christ was everything for Paul. It was just everything. He couldn't breathe without Jesus. I want him to be that for us, Bethlehem. 
Christ be everything to us. So I close by just summing up um, what it means to be a Christian in terms of the New Covenant promises. Number one, I'll just rattle them off real quick as we close. Number one, it means that our sins are forgiven. Underneath verse 6 is the ocean of forgiveness bought by the blood of Jesus. Oh, Christian, 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 stay near the cross. Don't go far away from Calvary. Stay real close to crucifixion. I read an article this week that was analyzing why fantasy is such a popular literary form in the 20th century past. And the, one of the answers given in the article was, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And the commentator, Christian commentator on that line said, that ought not to be the case for people who have been to the cross. That's good. That's good. If you get near the cross and see the agony, the substitutionary agony for you, you can handle reality. It'll hurt. It'll be horrible. But you can handle it because nothing will stun you after this. Nothing more horrible has ever happened in the world. Nothing has come close to the crucifixion of the Son of God. Not any earthquake in India, as horrible as it is, and many tears can flow. But if you can stay near the cross, if you can handle the cross, it will be your wisdom in life and your comfort in death. So I just plead with you, stay near the blood, stay near the cross, stay near the wounds, stay near the agony, and you will be a wise person. Not a flippant, superficial, trivial, K-sera-sera, happy-go-lucky, do-nothing-no-good human being. Second is, therefore you're free from the law. Christ bore the law's penalty for you. He fulfilled the law's demand for you. It is off of you. It is not crushing you from outside anymore. Where is it? It's coming from inside like a new desire because Christ and the Spirit are in you changing your heart. Third, you have a new spirit. You have a new spirit. The Holy Spirit is within you. Do you know that, Christian? Your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is God's. Next, I'm going to lose count here. You have God as your Father, and you know Him. You don't, you don't have to be pressured anymore. No, the Father. No, God. No, God. I know Him. He's mine. I love Him. We have a relationship. You don't need to pressure me anymore. That's true of a Christian. And perhaps, finally, the law of God is written on your heart. The law of God is written on your heart. And you're being changed. You're serving in the newness of the Spirit, not the oldness of the letter. So, last word. Christian, non-Christian. Christian, know this. Every blessing and every benefit you have is blood-bought. The new covenant is in the blood. And the new covenant is the promise of the law written on your heart, the forgiveness of your sins, knowing God, spirit within. That's the whole Christian life. 
And it's all bought by the blood of Jesus. Know that. Stay there. Love that. Cherish that. Treasure that. Make Christ your all in all. And now, unbeliever, same message. I don't have two messages. I only have one message. Message for believers. Message for unbelievers. Unbeliever, you may be just right outside of that. Saying, wow, if that were true, sin's forgiven, personal relation to God, law off my back, change from inside out, everlasting joy in His presence. I'd like that. It doesn't cost you anything. It cost Jesus everything. The question is, will you receive it as a treasure? Will you reach out and embrace it? Will you just say, I believe, I receive. And when that happens, you will now serve not in the oldness of a crushing letter, but in the newness of an internal power and spirit. You will, as it says in verse 4, bear fruit for God. Fruit. And that's love. And that's what you want. We want to be loving people. Let's pray. Father, we want our church to be a loving place. It's filled with sacrificial, loving people who lay down their lives to meet others' needs and are not selfish people. And that comes, we read now, from dying to the law and living in the Spirit, serving in the newness of the Spirit. So I ask that you would work it now. Why don't you stand up for a closing benediction? And now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship, the sweet personal fellowship of the Holy Spirit be in us all now and and forever. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.